Welcome to the Legacy Nashville podcast. We are so grateful that you've taken the time out of your day or night to tune in. We pray that this message encourages you to love God, love people, and change the world. Now, let's get to the message. All right, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Please be seated. I have to tell you, Legacy, you guys have a special place in my heart because we were here in January. I'm curious how many of you were here in January when my wife and I were here. A number of you. We were at your old campus or your other campus. And after the service, uh, Lyle and Allison brought us here. And this was still under construction, so much so that when we were walking up the staircase, some paint got rubbed off on us because it had just been freshly painted. So it's just wonderful to be with you guys in your new building. Congratulations on your new home, and I pray this is the beginning of many homes for legacy and just to accomplish all that's in your guys' heart and in your leadership's heart. But you guys have a special place in my heart, and the reason is this, is when we were here in January, we were in a very unique spot in our life. If you don't know, we are empty nesters, we're 45, and we had been pastoring Bethel for the last 10 years, lead pastor, we're on staff for 18 years, and to be honest with you, we had already signed the invisible contract in our heart, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our life, we're in Reading, leading this church and movement and doing everything that we did. And last fall, we got this unction that this is actually not where we're going to spend the rest of our life, which was quite shocking and a little bit of, uh, it was a lot of emotion involved because there's so many, you know, if you can imagine a big tree, an old tree that had roots that go down so deep, trying to yank that thing out of the ground, it's a little bit of a destructive slash process because some roots don't make it. It's just, you know, it's just, it's not easy to pull a really mature deeply rooted tree out. So lots and lots of stuff. Perhaps I will write a book on transition someday. I've talked on it a lot, but I'm so done talking about transition. I want to talk about future. That's all I want to talk about. So when we came in January, we were kind of in this space of like, God, what do we do with the next phase of our life? And we have been feeling kind of a pull towards South and North Carolina. So when we were with you guys here in January, we rented a car after that time with you, and we spent the next eight or nine days just driving all over South and North Carolina. And we, uh, we found a city that we didn't even know knew existed a year ago this month. We knew South Carolina existed, but we had no idea Greenville existed. So we ended up, Greenville, the first city that we went to after we spent a Sunday with you guys. And you guys deeply inspired us. I mean, whether you were here or not, but this church inspired us because we had never, had never crossed our mind once that we were ever going to plant a church. We've helped numerous churches get planted, but never thought we would because we were like, we're here the rest of our life. There's no reason to think about that. So here we are, we're in this like, what should we do next? And we came here and spent a day with you guys, two days with the leadership team. And my wife and I drove to the Carolinas thinking, man, that was so fun to see the life and something starting from a church plant. It inspired us to the point where we said, you know what, I think this is what we're supposed to do next. So you guys have actually have a part, a key part in just inspiring us in a season of just uncertainty. We have put everything on the altar. In other words, God, are we doing ministry in the church context anymore? What are we doing? We were just wide open. So I just want to say thanks to you and Lyle and Allison. They were, they were so, yeah, give it up for yourselves and your leadership. 
And we did drive away like, man, that was so inspiring. We actually want to do that now. And it was just really, really meaningful. So somehow we're working on the language of the relationship between legacy and studio. We don't know if we're brothers or cousins or sisters. We don't know the arrangement yet. Uh, Lila and I, Allison and Candace and I are working on that language. But just know that we are just on the other side of the Blue Ridge from you. And we're excited to be in the southeast region and to just really sow into what God's doing here. And if you ever come to Greenville, please come check us out. A quick update for you on that is next two days or a couple days from now will be our first kind of official gathering. <laughs> Tuesday night. We've had a couple info meetings over the last few months. We moved there three months ago, and it's no joke moving across the country with a dog and a cat. We almost lost a cat in Columbia, Missouri at QT. True story. And I really gave way too long of a story in first service, and I'm not doing that today because it took up. Like halfway through the story, I'm like, why am I even sharing this story? I don't even know, but we lost our Garfield. It, Rico's our cat, looked just like Garfield, eats like Garfield, acts like Garfield, thinks like Garfield. And I know that I just dated myself because Garfield, some of you are like, who's Garfield? If you know Garfield, you know what I'm talking about. But we lost Rico at QT. We're driving around QT Home Depot parking lot for like 20 minutes, can't find this cat. It's our daughter's cat. And our daughters are grown and out of the house. So we're like, somehow we inherited her cat. She's like, oh, no, we lost our daughter's cat, so my wife is in tears. I'm right there with her, just feeling it. There's no tears yet, but I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. How do you tell your daughter, oh, we lost your cat at QT in Columbia, Missouri? That just doesn't go over well. Driving around for 20 minutes, long story short, um, we're looking for this cat in all the parking lots, and the guy drives by, we're in the park, and the guy says, he's coming out of the tire well. He's coming out of the tire well. My heart, so I look, sure enough, Rico is crawling out of the engine compartment onto the tire and down on the ground. He was in the engine compartment for the last 20 minutes while we were driving around the gas station. And, he, and I, Rico, we're like, we're like just ecstatic and emphatically, he, uh, we were just excited to see him. And then he wanted to go back up. I grabbed his back two legs and yanked him. Like, you are not going there. You just freaked us out for the last 20, 30 minutes. We put him in the kennel in the back of the, in the cab of our truck, and he did not make a sound for the next two days. So anyway, that's, our, that's a very short version of our cat, lost, lost our cat story. But um, we've had a couple info meetings, and we called our church studio for one main reason. Studio are places where beautiful things are created. And so studio is a place where God and people meet, beautiful things happen, and beautiful things are created. And so if you're ever in the Greenville area, come check us out. Uh, pray for us this Tuesday night. Um, we, are, we found this very cool space. We really feel the first handful of gatherings that we're doing, uh, the ethos and the culture is really, really important to us. And where we meet, even from the architecture and the design of the space, is really crucial to what we really feel like God's called us to. We're actually pretty convinced that we're going to be in an old mill or warehouse someday. And if you don't know Greenville's history, it's got these old textile mills. It was a textile capital uh, back in the day of the textile industry. So you've got these old, we're living in one right now, these old lofts and just really beautiful spaces that are just historical. And just like Jesus takes someone's life and restores it, rebuilds it, and makes it beautiful, we feel called to take these old buildings 
and warehouses and mills and to take one that is just falling apart and rebuild it just like Jesus did our life. And so that's really what's in our heart. And it'd be a place where faith, business, creativity, and entrepreneurship intersect. And so we're really excited about it. So just uh, give us some time and we'll have some fruit to show you. But if you want to be a part of that, just be praying for us. In our first gathering, we're meeting in an old building next week called the Old Cigar Building. Not the coolest name. I'm like, just, it, you should look it up online. Not right now. After I'm done talking. It is just this cool, cool old brick building. It can only handle about 250 people. So we've already got 250 RSVP to be there. It's our first gathering. So be praying for us. And uh, we're excited to see where the Lord takes us in this journey of studio. So, and again, I'm honored to be here. Lyle and Allison, I'm so glad you guys are on vacation. Enjoy it and enjoy emptying your bank account at that place called Disney. Man, it's special, but rips you off at the same time. I don't know why, but it just does. All right, let's pray before we get into today's talk. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you know exactly where we are in our life. Thank you that you have already lived life on this earth in a very complex dynamics that we are currently in. You already know what it's like to be in it and to be one of us in it. And I pray this talk this morning would only encourage, inspire, and create a pathway forward in a very unique time in our lives and a unique time in human history. So we bless this talk. I pray for everyone's hearts and minds to be open. And Holy Spirit, anywhere where there's confusion or lack of clarity, I ask that you would clarify and make it really clear to each person listening here and in the future on podcast and on video. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. The title of today's message is A Fork in the Road. A Fork in the Road. If you're a note taker, I love note takers. If you're not one, pretend like you're one, and it just makes me happy. And if you really want to go to the next level, take note, take a picture of it, and tag me on Instagram. I love seeing what you heard, especially to make sure you heard what I meant to say. So that helps. So if you want to, ta- honestly, I love it. I love seeing people's notes. It's fun. And some of you are artists and you draw on your notes. I love all of it. So if you want to tag me on any of your notes, please do. It's Eric Bryant Johnson on Instagram. I would love to, love to see your notes. I want to talk about we're in a fork in a road. And how many know we have forks in a road throughout our life? Almost every day there's a fork in a road. And I want to speak to a fork in the road I believe we are at as a as followers of Jesus, as Christians, as a church, and as a, as a community of people that have said yes to God. I want to talk about this fork in the road. And I don't know about you, but I find it really um, in, intriguing that today's conversations among followers of Jesus are, are right now usually surrounding or it's talking about fear. Uh, that seems to be a dominant conversation today in our lives. We're talking about fear. Uh, we're talking about politics which isn't bad, but we're talking about it a lot. And we're talking about, you know, we're talking about how do we, how do we, um, should we mask or not mask? And, and who are the vaxxed and who are the non and, and the unvaxxed? And, and, we're, and we've got all of our conversations are just around all of these really, honestly, incendiary issues. They're not unimportant. They're important because they, they, they matter to us and we experience them daily. But it's fascinating to me that we've allowed these things to dominate our conversations. That it, it actually, it's actually sucked the life out of us. It sucked the, the imagination, the creativity. And I just, I just don't know why. Why are we not spending more time on how to follow Jesus well? 
Why are we not talking about how do we actually follow this man, Jesus? He actually showed us as a human being how to not just do life but thrive in the midst of a chaos and confusion, in the midst of millions of options of deities. I mean, he showed us how to do it. Why are we not talking about that? Why are we, why are we spending most of our time around ideas that create us and them paradigms? Why are we not talking more about how to create? Why are we not spending more time talking about how do we grow in our intelligence? Why are we not talking about how, how, do, we, how do we become better humans? And it's just a fascinating time in human history where I just, it's normal if you're outside of the context of Christianity and, and maybe you're of the world and you're, you're a secular worldview. That would be a very normal conversation, but that conversation now, just, there's no difference now between people that follow Jesus and people that don't. It's just the same conversation. And I want to implore us, plead with us, beg if I have to, we need to change our conversations. Those aren't unimportant. They're in our face every day, and we're raising kids in an environment that just scared the out of us. But at the same time, I believe the solution to those issues are in these other conversations. I believe the solution to a lot of the, the issues that happen today are on the other side of how God views humanity, not how we view humanity. But yet we're just so pulled in this, and, and we're at a fork in the road, and some of us are too far down that road. You need to find the reverse gear and back for maybe a couple of years until you get back to that fork and then go down this way. And our conversation like, why are we not talking about how do we create something beautiful? How do we take the material of our lives? How do we take the essence of who we are as human and make something awesome out of it? Instead, we're talking about how messed up other people are. And we've created this us and them paradigm. And, and, you know, it's hard because we live in an environment, we live in a culture, we live in a country that had a two-party system. So now all of our views are what side of the aisle are you on? We have reduced Christianity to a political ideal. We have redu- and it's hard to talk about creativity, imagination, intelligence, how to become better humans and how to actually follow Jesus when politics is your idol. So I want to challenge us today. I'm just, I'm just convicted deep to my core, and I'm just in this space of like, why are we, not, why are we talking so much about it? These are important. I get it. But why are we not talking about stuff that actually has solutions and brings life to everything that we do? I want you to imagine with me a, a dinner table up here. You pick the style of it. If you're more antique okay, you have an antique. If you're more vintage that was made yesterday, but made to look like it was 100 years old. That's cool. That's your style. I love it. If you're more like sleek, lined, modern, you know, minimal, then whatever. You pick. If you're a picnic bench person, great. Picnic benches. I'm great. Whatever it is, just picture a whatever your design preference is. I want you to just picture your dinner table. And at this dinner table, you've got a number of chairs around this dinner table. And let's say over here on this part of the table, we have a Muslim, uh, born and raised devout Muslim sitting at this dinner table. And there's a meal. And then next to the Muslim, you have a Buddhist. You have a Buddhist person that's born and raised devout Buddhist, so on and so forth. And, and next to that person, you've got, you've got an atheist, not one that thinks they are, one that really is. At least they think they really are. 
And then, of course, next to the atheist, you want to have an agnostic. Because that would be an intriguing conversation between the two of them. I would love to hear that conversation. And then next to, next to that, you have, you have, you know, just someone that isn't anything. They're just kind of a human that's just incredibly secular in worldview and thought. They're at the table, too. You know, they kind of embraced all of it. They're kind of that universalist approach, that, that, that person. And then over here, you've got, you know, you've got the new ager. You've got the, someone that's embraced the new age philosophies and you know, ideas and origins and all that. And then the other last chair at the table is you have a Christian sitting at that table. So imagine what that meal would look like. Imagine what kind of food. I don't know what food would be on that table because one group wouldn't be allowed to even look at it or even touch it. And the other group are like, this is all we want to eat. So that would be, how many would agree? That would be quite an eccentric, eclectic dinner right there. Then imagine the conversations at that table. Like, it would just be a fascinating conversation. I don't don't know if I'd want to be there or not, but it would be intriguing. But what's the narrative? Who would be the smartest at that table? What would be today's narrative? When you look at all the different religions and beliefs and worldviews, we have to ask the question, who would, who would be portrayed as the smartest in today's culture, today's narrative? Who would, be, who would be the most creative at that table? Who would be the most thoughtful, compassionate, kind person at that table? How about this? Who would be the most courageous at that table? Who at this table would be deemed or articulated as the one that walks in power. Not the idea of power, but actually walks in power. How many would say in today's narrative, the Christian probably wouldn't make, and again, it's not a competition, but the Christian probably wouldn't make the top of many of those lists in today's context. Now, let's, let's take the Christian and let's put them on the front row, and let's take Jesus and put Jesus at that seat. Same scenario, same meal, same conversations. Who would be the most kindest, compassionate person at that table? Who would be the most intelligent at that table? There's a reason why the reaction is different when I put Jesus there than a Christian there. Who would be the most creative person at that table? Who would be the most courageous person? No question, Jesus. Leaving his place in heaven to become a human, that courage. And to give his life for people that hate him, that called guts. Jesus would definitely win courage. Power, no question on power. No question. He was able to say, let there be light, and it happened. So we have to ask the question, why is there such a gap between the Christian at the table, and Jesus at that table. In fact, I actually believe everyone at that table would be really quiet, and the only thing, only thing they would say is asking Jesus questions. What about this? What about this? It would, that would be a dinner conversation that I would want to be at and listen to and, and just observe. So we have to wrestle with this idea, like, why is there a gap between Jesus at that table and us at that table? We've got to change our conversation to how to follow Jesus really well, how to create, how to grow in our intelligence. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the mind of Christ. We, we have settled for small thinking. We have settled for how the world thinks, how the world operates. 
We, we settle for small minds, and we think if we have a strong, small mind, we'll win. There's a dimension of higher thinking that Jesus operated in. It was so subversive in nature, it changed the entire course of human nature. We have to ask the question, how do we, how do we get there? How do we, how do we actually get into that space where we're actually growing in our intelligence, we're growing in our creativity, we're growing in our imagination, we're growing in all these areas, we're becoming more courageous. We're talking about the mind of Christ, and, you know, there's a great passage in the Bible that we love, and it's, it's Romans 12, 2, if you want to write this down. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's one of our favorite verses in, in the church, because we're talking about renewing our mind. How many understand renewing our mind is a really good idea? It's not just a one-to-day thing. It's literally all day now. And sometimes renewing your mind is not watching something or listening to something. It's just like, just don't flood yourself with that information. So renewing our mind, but the challenge I have with renewing our mind is we only understand it as having good thoughts. We've, we, we've reduced it down to how do we have pure moral thoughts? Now, let's be very frank and honest. How many agree moral thought, good and pure thoughts are important? Absolutely. Like, my goal today is to not lust. Or my goal today is to be someone that is about the character of God. My goal today is to not have any bad thoughts towards X, Y, Z. My goal today is to be someone that brings hope and life into every situation. Those are crucial and important. But I would like to just propose, that's just entry-level renewed thinking. That's just entry-level. That's just like, that's where you kind of start. And I don't want to diminish it. That's crucial and important. But I'll tell you what, create, creation was not created because of a pure thought. Creation was not, it wasn't like Jesus said, I don't want to sin today, and creation happened. I don't want to lust today, I don't want to lie today, I don't want to steal today, and all of a sudden the universe came out of those words. No. You see, renewed thinking has to go beyond just pure, good, moral thoughts There's the dimension of higher thinking that Jesus is introducing by how he lived life and did life. But yet we're so satisfied with small thinking. I just kind of want to have a good day in my thoughts and get through it. And I love that, but I'm telling you what, nothing changes, only you. We live in a world right now that needs some drastic changes. And the solution to helping the world become a beautiful place is on the other side of how Jesus thought, how Jesus saw, and how we acted. It's complex because whenever politics become our idol, there's no way to do what Jesus did. It's impossible. So it begs the question, how do we get there? It's summed up in this. You follow him. The challenge, though, with following now, in our culture, following had been reduced to a click or a button or touch the screen. So the, even the word follow, even the word followers, it, it, it doesn't have any meat anymore. It just has this shallow commitment. And I, I'm, I'm concerned that that actually bled over into our commitment to Jesus. And so now Jesus is an accessory to our life. He's an addition to our life. He's an app on the screen. Oh, I don't know how to get to Publix. Uh, I guess I'll just open the app and Jesus will get me there. Okay, thank you, Jesus. Then we swipe up and get, delete the app or close it down. 
oh, shoot, where's the stadium at? Okay, okay, thank you, Jesus. And he takes us there. And we've treated Jesus like he's added to our life instead of leaving ours to join his. And yet we're trying to do things in this world like him, but yet he's only an addition. He's not actually the point. So we really do need a renewed view, a renewed thinking when it comes to discipleship, what it actually, actually, actually is. Do you notice that when Jesus goes to the disciples, and the most common one that we talk about is Matthew, when he goes to Matthew's tax office, which, when you're a tax collector in the Roman Empire, the Hebrew Jewish view was they're sinners, and Jesus called them sinners. Why? Because they're corrupt with the Roman Empire. So Jesus goes into one of the most corrupt spaces in the Roman Empire and looked at a tax collector and says, follow me. Do you notice that he doesn't sit down in the office and hang out with Matthew? He says, follow me, and he leaves. So in that moment, Matthew has to decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to stay in my life or am I going to leave my life? And a lot of us invite Jesus to think he's hanging out in our life. We think, oh, yeah, Jesus, come on in. Yes, I'm so glad you showed up in my life. Man, I've been needing you. I need what you have to help me get what I want and what I need in life. And that's not discipleship. That's a friend. That's a bro. But that ain't Jesus. So we've lost the depth and the meaning and the gravitas of what discipleship actually is. But yet we're trying to do this thing called life. It's because we actually aren't following him. We just added him to our life. So I want to propose to you, true discipleship actually is you leaving everything. Leaving your ideals. And if it requires you to move, then you move. It requires you to end relationships, you end relationships. Whatever it takes, it means you leave. And for Matthew, it meant he left his job, his livelihood. That's what it meant to Matthew. It didn't mean that to everybody else. For some of the others, it was just reconfiguring their skill set. Instead of being fishers of fish, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Same skill set, just aimed in a different direction. So for some of you, that's what it means to leave everything. So there's different dimensions of leaving everything. So don't think, i got to leave Nashville now and move to some... No, that's not what I'm implying. You just have to leave whatever it is that's holding you back that you're trying to add Jesus to. So let me, let me read some stuff to you that will, that's more, um, that'd be help, I think will be helpful to you to understand what discipleship actually is. If you look at the Hebrew noun, it's pronounced Talmudim or Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D, the Hebrew noun. And I just want to read to you some, some of the definitions and ideas that surround this word to help bring a little bit more gravity to what we're talking about. Are you guys still with me? So Talmud, or disciples, this word stresses the relationship between the rabbi, the teacher, or the master, and the disciple, the student. A disciple of Jesus in his day would give up his entire life just to be with the teacher. That was the standard. The disciple didn't only seek to know what the teacher knew. Is what is the case today. If I can just know what he thinks or what she thinks, then I've got it. That's not discipleship, just head knowledge. It was not enough just to know what the rabbi said, but the foremost goal of any disciple was to become like the rabbi and do what the rabbi did. The only way you could do that is if you've left everything. It's the only way. So if you haven't left everything or given everything back to him, you'll get a nominal discipleship with Jesus. 
You'll have a great moment and great experiences, but you won't be completely converted into a true disciple. I'm going to keep going here. In the context of first century Jerusalem, the 12 disciples would have been considered Talmudim, disciples. Individuals specifically chosen by a rabbi to carry on and disseminate the teachings of their rabbi. Jesus did not just choose anybody. He made admittance to his Talmudim very difficult. The standards were high. His teachings were offensive and hard. How many remember they eat my flesh and drink my blood? That was the standard of discipleship. The 12 and those who remain with Jesus in many ways were the best of the best, if you think about it in that way. Moreover, they were being specifically trained to impact humanity in a variety of leadership capacity, which we see in the book of Acts and in the epistles. By the time Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples were no longer unlearned or uneducated. They had spent three years under the tutelage of the God-man Jesus Christ via the rabbinic mode of learning, which meant that the disciples had the most intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, holistically rigorous educational experience in history. No university on the planet can compare to the three years with Jesus, and yet he wasn't just hanging out with them. He employed a disciplinary model of the culture to make them specialists in order to engage with their culture. So in the same way that Plato and Aristotle were the elite disciples of Socrates, Peter, John, and Paul were the elite disciples of Jesus Christ, trained to spread his teachings. Tim Keller says this, Christians are unique citizens in society because they are formed by the upside-down kingdom of God. They move out into the world as self-sacrificers instead of self-actualizers. In Acts 4.13, it says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. It's a very famous verse, and especially in charismatic circle, that's been our excuse to not go to college. It's really, it's very misapplied. To say the disciples weren't, were untrained and uneducated isn't accurate. That was the response from the people that observed. How are these guys getting this level of what they're doing? Because they were highly trained and highly educated by Jesus. That was just, they were offended at how they, doing what they were doing with no formal training like they had. So we have been invited into a highly complex disciplinary model of following Jesus. So if you truly want to walk in a complex, chaotic, confusing culture today, the only solution to close the gap between Jesus at the dinner table or you at the dinner table is true discipleship. It's the only way. There is no other way. So I want to challenge us this morning. Like we are, we are in a moment. We're a fork in the road as, as believers. The moment we step out this door, we are, we are exposed all over again to what's happening, to the divisiveness that's taking place in our culture. And yet Jesus, we have to remember, Jesus showed up, he gave his life, died, and resurrected so we could have life. But we have to remember, he spent life as one of us. He knows what it's like to be in an environment that is so godless 
so atheistic, so secular in thought. And if you don't like this next phrase, I apologize. I did not make it up, so you can't get mad at me, but post-Christian. We're, we're living in a time right now where we're, we're like in between two spaces, two major seasons. We have what, what we've lived, and if you've been old, alive long enough, you know what I'm talking about, versus what we're stepping into, which is even more post-Christian, depending on what city, what nation you go to. And the word post-Christian is, is offensive, and I understand. I didn't make it up, so don't get mad at me. But the word post-Christian essentially means this. It's a kingdom without a king. And what it means is that there's actually people now that are actually alive today that have no context of a God or a Bible or even their, their, the, the idea that our nation's constitution was founded on God is so foreign from their worldview. That's referring to post-Christian. Now, I understand a lot of us are fighting for what used to be. And believe me, I, I do miss those moments uh, before post-Christian hit the shores of our nation. But at the same time, if we don't take our attention off what used to be, we're going to miss what's in the future. Now, if you don't like the phrase, don't like it, I'm fine with that. But stop holding on to what used to be and let's find out where Jesus is taking us. And how do we actually live in this context? Because if you think it was hard to live now, you should have seen the Roman Empire when Jesus was alive. Did you know Jesus could have chosen any time in human history to step into? He looked at the timeline and thought, hmm, I wonder when I should show up. Because he could have showed up many different times in human history. I mean, he could have showed up during Solomon. Like, man, that was beautiful. Solomon, the most prosperous, peaceful time in all of Israel's history was called the Golden Age. Jesus could have said, you know what, that's a, that's a really nice time to show up in that time in human history. He said, no, that's, that's not the point. So when the Roman Empire came, he said, okay, that's my time. I'm going to step into that time in human history. And to understand, I just want to read some information to you that I think will help to explain the depth and the complexity of what it was like. This won't even do justice. You'll have to do your own research. But you'll have to understand that the Roman Empire was insanity in every direction. Let me just read a couple of things to you. Are you guys still with me? Caesar Augustus was the emperor during the life of Jesus. After Julius Caesar was assassinated, his adopted heir named Octavian, and they eventually changed his name to Augustus, he was put on the throne. The Senate made, they changed his name from Octavian to Augustus for this sole purpose, because Augustus had a sense that we're going to worship this person. The entire empire was going to worship this human being. One source even says so much worship was aimed at Caesar Augustus that there wasn't any other worship left for the other gods. Upon the death of his father, Julius Caesar, who was divinized, Caesar Augustus was seen as the son of God, as the savior. Because his dad would be a divinity, sorry, (laughs) messing my word up. He would made a deity. And so he was the son of God. He was the bringer of peace. The announcement of Caesar was the good news. Have you noticed that language is the same language attributed to Jesus? The idea that Luke, the gospel writer, Luke, he said, no, that's not the savior of the world. That's not the son of God. He's not bringing the good news. Jesus, the Messiah, is the son of God. He's bringing the good news, and he's the savior of the world. So this shows you the contrast to the culture that they lived in. 
Caesar Augustus was viewed as a god. One source said the arrangement of the public square in the city of Ephesus was so that the temple dedicated to the emperor would be prominent. N.T. Wright said most in the Roman world, the belief in the emperor was divine, would have been both obvious and uncontroversial. Roman Empire adhered to a pantheon of gods, while the early Christians held onto there is one god. They were monotheistic. So, this proves the point. When early church said, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, they are making a stand against an entire empire that had been oppressing them for hundreds of years. Talk about guts and courage. They said, no, there's no other God but him. This is one God. Talk about courage of the early church. In the face of a culture that deified everything, they said, no, this is one God. What's fascinating to me, too, is, is that if you can imagine being the nation of Israel, you've been under the oppression of the Roman Empire for hundreds of years now, and you've been aware of this person called the Messiah going to come someday. The promised one is going to come and going to set us free. And when you're oppressed, one of your main goals is to overthrow your oppressor. That's just how this thing works. So if you're being oppressed for hundreds of years, far back as your family records show, and the future looks like the same trajectory, you're thinking this Messiah is going to come and rescue us. The Messiah is going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire. So they're crying out for this Messiah. So imagine being alive in this moment in human history, and Jesus shows up, the chosen one, the promised one, the Messiah. How excited would you be? Like, oh my gosh. It's no longer a thought or a dream. It's taking place in our life. And then you get to Matthew chapter 5. I want you to turn your Bibles there. This is basically Jesus' accepting speech. They've been waiting for the Messiah to show up and lay out the plan of how we're going to overthrow the Roman Empire. This is the mood of the hour. This is it right here. Jesus gets up. Stand in front of a group of people that are waiting for a political overthrow, for a coup. They're waiting. This is why later on in the gospel, one of the moms said, hey, when you get on the throne, can my boy sit next to you? They're thinking in a political context. They're thinking in a very worldly context. So you know, they're like, Jesus, bring it. We're ready to take up arms. Whatever it takes, we're following you. And look at the words of Jesus. This is his acceptance speech. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the... Can you imagine standing there going, how is this going to overthrow the Roman Empire? This is actually submitting ourselves more to the oppression. Let's keep reading. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How are we inheriting the earth if they're still on top of us? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Let's skip down to verse 11. This is what Jesus drives at home. Blessed are those when they revile and persecute you. They have already been persecuted for years. And Jesus is saying, you're blessed. This is his acceptance speech. This is his call to the future. Now, if you have your Bible, go a little farther. I want you to go to verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Yeah, when's our eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth going to happen? 
And Jesus said, it's not going to happen, so this is what's going to happen. I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slapped you on your right cheek, turn to him and give him the other also. Imagine standing there going, are you kidding me? I was slapped on my way to this rally today, and Jesus is telling me to let him slap me again? I'm out. This is not what I signed up for. So you can imagine the people that actually follow Jesus, pretty impressive. Really impressive, actually. Keep reading. But I tell you not, oh, sorry, uh, verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. That moment of go the extra mile. In the Roman Empire, written into the code of law, a Roman um, soldier could grab any Hebrew and ask them to carry their pack. It was a heavy pack. Ask them to carry it for a mile. It was written into the law. And the whole point of it was to give the Roman soldier a break, a reprieve from carrying the pack. So he could, you could be going about your day, and they could come up and say, you carry my pack for a mile. You couldn't say no. It was written into the law. And if you don't, there were repercussions to that. And Jesus said, oh, yeah, when that happened, don't go one, go two. So this is Jesus' approach to the context and the culture. This is why we will never find solutions if politics are our idol. And how many would agree Jesus changed the game? He set the sights on something else, much bigger, much more important, and much more real than what I could see. Let's have a few more minutes. Got quiet in here. I really like that, though. While the men around him sought the throne of Rome, he was heading for a greater throne. While the disciples were struggling with their reputations, Jesus was unraveling a world system that shaped their view of ministry. Elitism, racism, and calling down fire. Jesus was unraveling all of that. While they're fighting to get to power, he said, there's a whole other way to do this thing. It's an upside-down kingdom. So let's make a decision today to be men and women who talk more about character, who talk about how do we become more intelligent with the mind of Christ, not intelligent just from a mind over matter's sake, but the mind of Christ, the same mind that created everything in existence. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how do we have more courage? How do we, how do we become people of great courage in this, in this day and age? How do we become great husbands? How do we become great wives? How do we become great children? How do we become great friends? How do we become great humans that want to take the matter, the material, the essence of their lives and make something beautiful? Let's talk about that. I believe that's the fork in the road that we need to make a decision. How many would agree, I'm going to end with this, Jesus became more dynamic, more creative as he lived on the earth. Is our understanding of faith in God, our interpretation of it, our assimilation of it, and our actualizing it, is it making it duller? Or is it making us more dynamic? Is our understanding of, of the gospel, is our understanding of the way of Jesus, is it making us more narrow-minded or is it making us more multidimensional? 
Do you recognize that Jesus touched the elite to the poorest of the poor and everyone from the left to the right? He was so multidimensional, it's scary. But yet we're so focused on which side of the aisle are we on here? No wonder why the problems are continuing. I want to challenge you, the way of Jesus is the only way forward for us people. It's the only way forward for us. It's the way of Jesus. He defied all logic and reason. He busted every worldview that came into play. And he is still doing the same. But we have to choose to follow him. Why don't you stand? I want to pray for you. How many received this today? Three of you. Okay. So, Father, I thank you for legacy. I thank you for every person in this room. I pray that we leave this space today with this reality of like, we can become more intelligent like Jesus. We can become more courageous like him. We can take our lives and create something even more beautiful with him and for him. And I pray that this inspiration wouldn't just be short-lived, but actually course-correct the road we've been going on. And I pray for every person in this room today would feel the presence of the Lord touching every part of their being right now, their mind, their soul, their emotions, and their body, that they would experience the presence of God touching them because the future is important to you, Jesus. And we want to be a people that are going to let go of what used to be and move into the future of where you're taking us. And I pray that we be deeply inspired to become men and women of strong, great character in a time that doesn't care about it. So I bless legacy and all that's in their heart to do. And I pray there should become an incubator for the future. There should become a space where ideas that change the course of human history come out of this space right here in the lives of people. I pray the imagination would go to a whole nother level. The mind of Christ, the ability to create would go to a whole nother level. I pray that we'd be able to engage with incendiary issues from a kingdom perspective, not just a world perspective of just reacting and all for the purpose of dividing. So I bless this house in the name of the Lord. And everybody said, amen. Amen, guys. Bless you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into the Legacy Nashville podcast. If you'd like to support the ministry, you can do so at LegacyNashville.org forward slash give. If you're listening on iTunes, log into the store and give us a good rating and review. This helps our podcast reach new people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Until next week, love God, love people, and go change the world.